Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Today's sermon comes from James chapter 4. It's called A Life of Confession and Repentance. And I'll be honest with you, some topics are easier and some topics are harder. I would put this in the harder category, maybe even a top five for me when it comes to preaching, is trying to talk with you in such a way and talk to my own heart in such a way that we don't just intellectually get what's going on here, but that our heart is moved by the reality of the condition of our heart and soul based upon this passage. So as I jump into it, I am very dependent, just like you, on the Lord to do His work through the text and in our heart and in our mind. As we work into the text, I want us to remember some of the things that stuck out to us and that we looked at and studied last week. When we studied the character and person of our Lord, we were told and we were taught that He is our refuge. He is our shield. He is our shelter. All those things are still true in our discussion of confession and repentance. They're all still there. It's still the way we interact with the Lord God himself. We were also told last week that we dwell in the shadow of his wings. He's ever present in a strong and gentle way. So the conversation for us with the Lord in this area takes place in that shadow, as well as in the shadow of the cross itself. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, our conversation today isn't so much a Jesus saves conversation as much as a Jesus transforms conversation. What I mean by that is it's so often heard, especially in this area, that if you still struggle with sin, you need to get saved again. That's not the conversation today. If you're saved, Jesus fully saves you. Sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. But what we're going to learn from the text is just because you're saved or I'm saved because of the grace of God, sin continues to be present in our heart and our mind. But what he gives us here with confession and repentance is a pathway, a pathway of transformation where my relationship with God will actually grow more, will grow more deeply than if I just pretend like I don't have a problem. If you just pretend like you don't have a problem. So we're gonna jump onto this pathway and talk about what it means to go deeper and deeper in our love and joy and appreciation in the Lord. So when we talk about sin, and we're gonna talk about it a lot today because the passage does, sins are things and desires that are contrary to God's character and God's commands. Sins are things and desires that are contrary to God's character and God's commands. And notice I said things and desires. There's external areas of things, the things that I do, sometimes the things that I say, and then there's internal areas of sin. Desires, pleasures, motivations, the reasons and the whys behind my actions. And God holds us accountable to both the external stuff and the internal stuff. The Bible references sins and our sinful nature. So in the first point of the sermon, I call it the symptoms and the sickness. The symptoms and the sickness. I could have called this the fruit and the tree. The fruit is produced by the health of the tree or the lack of health of the tree. So you don't 
you can judge a tree by its fruit. But if something goes bad with the fruit, you don't look at the branches, you look at the tree itself, the trunk, the root system. So we see both in here. We see the fruits and we see the system that resides underneath. We could also call this the what and the whys. The what's are the things that I do and the whys are why I do those things. The symptoms, if you're sick, is the outward sign that you have a deep internal problem. Maybe it's cancer. Those outward signs point to an internal struggle, something that's eating away at your insides and slowly messing you up. Today, the conversation's about both, the outward and the inward. So if you go to James chapter four with me, you're gonna see in the text on the screen, they have some things that are italicized. The things that are italicized are kind of the, the symptoms and the things that are underlined are the sickness pieces of this conversation, the things that reside a little deeper. Verses one and two say this, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So just here in this text, some of the symptoms, some of the external things would include quarrels, conflicts, fighting, and even murder. They're going at each other. Now, murder's interesting. I wouldn't suggest that there's a um, disagreement, and at the end of the disagreement, we have body bags. Okay, so I don't think that's what James is talking about. That's a pretty big issue. James is deeply connected to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you've heard it said, do not commit murder, I tell you that if you look at your brother or sister and say, fool, moron, idiot, you've broken the commandment, you've murdered. So my suggestion here with the idea of murder is that they're going in a direction with these conflicts where they're saying hard things to one another that's breaking this internal piece of the external great commandments that Jesus told us about. And James has been talking about some of these outward issues for a while now in the book. If you remember, he said in chapter one that we are quick to anger and we're quick to saying things first. We're not quick to listen. We're slow to listen, but we're quick to getting our words out, controlling the environment, controlling the conversation. And then we get angry if things don't go our way. That's also some of the symptoms of our sickness. He also talked about favoritism. There's a tendency within us to be self-centered in our desires and our intentions. And then we even go so far as to promote ourselves. He talks about the fact that we like to bring people close to us who are successful, who are wealthy, who are people of influence. And those who don't have very much, or we can't get much from them, we tend to kind of ignore them. We put them in the back. They don't get a seat of honor, they get a seat of dishonor. They're in the background. So that's also a tendency within us. One more thing that he mentions that I think we can all relate to is our tongue and our words. He talks about the fact that we can belittle others, hurt others. He describes the tongue as a restless evil, that with the tongue, we can basically set the world on fire. It's called poisonous. Again, our words are so often a result of what's going on inside of us. The things we say out loud is an indication of what's going on on the inside. So the disease or the internal part, he talks about that. He calls it our pleasures. 
I would suggest these pleasures are pointing to our tendency towards self-centeredness. It even goes on to talk about this war that's taking place. It says that there is a war, there's push and pull, there's friction between what and what. A war means there's two sides. Well, the pleasures are this tendency for us to be me-oriented, me first. I'm going to take care of me versus God first, God orientation. I'm most concerned about him and helping others. So there's these two sides of us that we still struggle with. And the question is, are we going to fight here? Are we going to fight for this? He goes on and describes his internal desire with the words lust and envy. Oftentimes when you hear the word lust, the thought there is that it's something sexual. But in context here, it's broader than that. It just means to have an affection directed towards anything, to desire, to long after, to covet. Basically anything in the world, and this can be a thing, this can be a person, this can be a career, a last name, it can be a status thing, but it's to long for and desire something that's not yours and you want it to be yours. That's lusting. Envy is defined as to zealously desire something to be moved with envy. Both of these in scripture can be positive or negative. We're called to long for some things, but then we're also called to not long for other things. So here they're both used in a negative sense. And this is not the first time where James talks about this internal struggle with our pleasures. In James chapter 1, verse 14, he talks about temptation. He says this, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts or her own lusts. Where does temptation come from? So often, if you're like me, if I know that I misspoke or I got a little aggressive, I usually will say, well, did you hear what she said? Did you see the way that person treated me? Did you see that ridiculous situation I had to deal with? Of course I had to respond that way. So what I'm doing there is I'm saying it's the external components, it's the circumstances that caused me to sin. It's kind of their fault. What James says is that has nothing to do with it. He says each one is tempted and carried away and enticed by his own lust. So the circumstance popped up, an opportunity for me to give you, tell you what I really think pops up and something inside of me thought, I'm gonna fight for myself. I'm gonna make sure this person doesn't run me over. I'm gonna fix this situation so it works out better for me. So that internal thing is where my temptation really came from, not this thing. So when it comes to these conversations with the Lord about our sin, no one gets to look at the Lord and say, wasn't that kind of your fault, God? Why'd you put me in that circumstance? It's always that happened because of me. I'm the man. I'm the one who chose that. It points to my internal struggle and my willingness to go outwardly in a way that puts me first. Now, it's important to understand that this internal part, it's not gonna go away. It's called our sinful nature. And Jesus says that this sinful nature will continue. It's like this nasty cancer that we've got inside of us. And it will be a part of us until we see Jesus face to face. On this side of heaven, it's a part of our condition. No one is perfect on this side of heaven. It's on the other side we get to enjoy that. So on this side of heaven, there's a struggle. Here he calls it a war, a push and a pull and friction that's taking place. And I would suggest that it's crucial that we feel this war. There should be fighting. If the, fighting, if the fight has fallen out of you, 
I would suggest you should be concerned. There's a tendency that we have, and even when I describe this, I'm, my intention, I want to say my intention is not to poke, but if you feel poked, I'm okay with that. It's so typical for us to find a house that we enjoy in a neighborhood that feels safe, to get that car that we know is going to get us from A to B every single day, surround ourselves with friends that we really enjoy, to make sure we're making about the right amount of money that we can do the things we really want to do. And all of those things can be very harmless. But just realize, in each of those, there's a little bit of a me orientation, where I can set my life up where I really can just be me first and no one notices. My checkbook, my schedule, my time, my resources are centered around making sure that I just have a comfortable life. You can have all those same things in your life, but your focus could be this. How can I use my house to get time with my neighbors who don't know Jesus? How could I take my things and use and leverage those things for the kingdom of God? How can I take my schedule, my checkbook, my resources, and my vacations and make sure that I'm building relationships and putting God first? So just for yourself, even with your stuff and the life you've set up for yourself, is it me-driven or is it God-driven? And you're going to feel the war of those two things. You finally get that car you enjoy. Could you let someone borrow it who you know might put a scratch on it for their sake? Ooh, that just got hard, didn't it? So the things that you have that you treasure and you hold on to, can you let go of those things if it's for the sake of the Lord or for the sake of others? You should feel the fight in your life. Back to verse two. Here he starts to talk about prayer in the second part of verse two. And he says this, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you might spend it on your pleasures. We still see symptoms and we still see sickness in these verses. There is prayerlessness. Why? Because they don't ask. If you're frustrated with the Lord, are you talking to him? Are you asking? It goes a little deeper though. It also talks about fruitless prayer. So they're asking, but they're not receiving. Why? Here's a big why. Here's an internal thing. It's because of wrong motives. Wrong motives point back to the war. We have come to the Lord with our me-centered, me-first, the world's about me agenda, and we've asked him to stamp it and to approve it and even be the one who would bless and make it happen. Wow. And sometimes we do it unknowingly. It's just a tendency inside of us. We foolishly show up in the Lord's presence and basically say, Lord, not only do I place myself in the center of my own world, but I'm going to ask you right here and right now, can you bless my efforts to do so? And then we ask for things, not for his sake, not for the sake of others, but to really set up this world around myself in a way that feels comfortable, that feels good, that puts me in the center. And then we ask God and expect God to bless it. And the Lord who knows us so well and knows what we need, looks at us and says, no son, no daughter, I'm actually not gonna give you that. Anytime we start looking at God as a cosmic bellhop, or like our celestial Santa Claus. God has to slow us down. Have you ever met a person or a kid who gets everything they ask for? Aren't those fun people to be around? I mean, those are hard people. We call those spoiled brats, right? So even as I go to the Lord, if I go to the Lord and say, Lord, can you help me be a spoiled brat? I want the world to revolve around me. If I get these things 
everything's going to work out. God's like, no, I've got better plans for you. I'm going to take care of you in a better way. As we continue into verse four, the words become more difficult and I want us to be able to feel the weight of these words. The first two words of verse four, which is directed to James' audience, and I would suggest to you they are directed to you, your spouse, your kids, those that you love. They're directed to your pastors. He says, you adulteresses. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. You adulteresses. He's talking to us and our tendency to drift, our tendency to give our love to another. So here, he's talking about the world. Remember the war? The war is this. It's about me, me orientation, me first. God, God-oriented, God first for the sake of others. And the world is over here on this side. And the world is saying openly, you see the advertising every single day. I'll give you the things you want. All the needs to put you in the center of your world, come to me, I will give you those things. I'll help put you first. I have both things and services to put you in the position to fulfill all those pleasures, all those desires that I know you have. So simply, quickly, easily, our heart starts to drift and we go to those things because God's over here saying, deny yourself, pick up the cross. And sometimes we don't want to hear that. So we move this way. And before you know it, we drift. And our heart, our devotion, our intimacy for the world begins to increase. And all of those same things for the Lord decrease. The world becomes our source of security our source of identity. We align ourselves with the world and his values, and therefore we distance ourselves from the Lord. His mission, his purposes, his values, and now I'm over here. And the Lord looks at us as we're standing over here and he says, you adulteresses. And all of us have to hear that. And we have to recognize that we all have the tendency to do that. We have this tendency to drift when we hear this, we tend to move towards it. And the Lord sometimes has to use strong language to call us back. That's what he's doing here. So how does God respond to this? We've drifted, how does he respond to it? His response is based upon his nature, his love, his faithfulness, his goodness, and his righteous jealousy. Second point is about the character of God. When we go to verse five, it says this, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He jealously desires the spirit which he's made dwell in us. This is a tricky verse to understand. Maybe even in your translation, the word spirit there is capitalized. Commentators would go one of two directions here. Either this is talking about the Holy Spirit or about kind of the human spirit, the core part of who you are, who we are. Now, throughout the book of James, he has not mentioned the Holy Spirit at all. He just hasn't. So for him all of a sudden to bring it up here in this obscure way would be really strange. So I would lean in the direction 
with many commentators that he's probably talking about the human spirit. So what he's saying there is he jealously desires all the things inside of you that he's made you to be. He wants those things for himself. He's saying, I love you, I long for you, and I want all of you. When we hear the word jealousy, we often think of it in a negative sense. We think of it in terms of us as people. Jealously, we like that person's truck, that person's last name, that person's status, career, his symbols, his, his second house, her looks, her ability to interact relationally with people. We long for things that aren't ours. And that kind of jealousy is a negative jealousy. But when we're talking about the Lord, it's a very different subject. His jealousy comes in light of the adultery that he just mentioned. For him, his jealousy is a description of his love and his desire for us, his desire for all parts of us, our mind, our thoughts, our heart, our emotions, our intentions, our soul, our strength, our things, everything about us, he wants to be devoted to him. All of us long to be wanted. And what God's saying here is I want you. I jealously want all of you. He has an unwavering love and commitment to us now and forever. A fierce, all-encompassing love for his children. A I will fight for you and call you back and receive you always kind of love. And a I am heartbroken over your unfaithfulness kind of love. So as he watches us drift away, he knows that we're going to experience brokenness, hurt, and pain. It's like watching a child wander towards a road full of cars and traffic. Like you just see the destruction that's coming. And that's what the Lord sees as we move towards the world. What would it feel like if you knew God didn't mind if you just wandered away? It would feel terrible. His jealousy is for our good. It's a good thing that our God is jealous. It shows his love. It shows his care. It shows his commitment. It shows his faithfulness to us, even to us, a wandering, adulterous people. He's jealous for us. We see it demonstrated most fully on the cross. In the middle of our sin, in the middle of the Jewish people who had basically given up on Jesus, he dies on the cross for them and for all who would believe. So we would have access to God, deep connection with God, so that we could have a conversation about our sin with our Father in a secure and safe place. Jesus dies on the cross to make all of that happen. We see his love, faithfulness, and jealousy all on display. So as we start moving a little bit farther into the text, I want you just to notice he categorizes people into the humble and to the proud. He said it a little bit higher in verse six, that he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. As we go a little farther, the way we respond here in verses seven, eight, and nine will help you know the status of your heart. Are you in the prideful category or are you in the humble category? Our third point is our response and God's response. Verse seven says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The word submit there isn't, if you feel like it, when you get a chance, why don't you consider submitting to God? That's not what it says. 
This is very much an imperative, a command. He's saying, stop what you're doing. Put it down. Submit to God. Like there's nothing else to do. There's no next step until this happens. You submit yourself to God. And in doing so, you draw near to him and he draws near to you. So in the context of who the Lord is, we've talked about this last week, our refuge, our strength, our shelter. We live in the shadow of his wings and the shadow of the cross. Then when he says, submit to your father, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I, that's where I wanna be. We submit to the father. And when he says, draw near, it's like, of course I'll draw near. I want to be near. Have I drifted? We draw near. And then God's presence is right there in response and then he goes on to call a response from us. And he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn into mourning and your joy to gloom. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. These are very hard words. I can't find many harder words in the New Testament that God is saying to us, his children. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. That's the response. But the response comes from the reality that we are called sinners. You're being called a sinner right here. I'm being called a sinner right here. In this moment, he's talking to Christians and he's saying, you double-minded. But is it not true there's a tendency for us, and with this whole war idea, there's a tendency for us to struggle with being me-centered, and then there's a desire in my heart to be God-centered. So we are double-minded. We shift back and forth. Sometimes we're faithful, and sometimes we're not faithful. We do struggle with sin. We are double-minded. We are adulteresses at time. So in that reality, God is calling us into a family conversation with our dad. He's calling us into his presence, submit, draw near. Get in here, child. Let's have this conversation. There is safety and security in this conversation because there's safety and security in this relationship. We can get before our heavenly father because he is our refuge. He is our strong tower. We live in the shadow of his wings. He is our dwelling place. So in this dwelling place, we now have the ability to have this conversation openly, honestly, not fearing retribution, but only looking through the conversation to the opportunity of grace and increased joy on the other side. So often with this concept of having a conversation about confession, we come from a religious framework thought process rather than a relationship grace-oriented process. With religion, I tend to think this and say this in my head, I messed up, my dad's gonna kill me. But with relationship and grace and the gospel, we think, I messed up. I got to call dad. My first response is to go to my heavenly father, not to run away from my heavenly father. Some of the best moments I've had with my spouse, my kids, is when we're in a position to have a conversation to get right with one another. I mean, probably most of the time it's me trying to get right with them. I mess up plenty in all of those relationships, and sometimes they do too. But those moments, even think about them in your life. Times when your child has come up to you and just said, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I did that. Even when you see one child, 
apologize to a sibling or to another, or you apologize to your spouse or your child for what you've done or said. Those are precious moments. And God is offering those to us with him. Here are some tendencies we have. Sometimes we try to escape the conversation by believing or perceiving or projecting. We've got it all together. Confession and repentance, that sounds good. That sounds really biblical. I'm okay. I'm doing fine. If you think that way, you just kind of ignored a lot of descriptions that the the Bible has given about you. You and I are sinners. You and I are double-minded. We tend towards adultery. It doesn't go away. There's a war waging. If you don't feel the war, then you don't recognize your sin. If you don't feel the war, maybe you've already drifted so far. But your next step, like everyone's next step, is confession, repentance. So sometimes you just pretend like we have it all together. Have you ever come home after being gone and usually your dog runs up to you and is like really excited to see you, but this time you get home and your dog's standing at a distance. He's kind of half looking at you, half looking away. What do you do? Well, I start looking to figure out what my dog just destroyed, right? Because he just destroyed something. He doesn't want to have a conversation with me about it. So my dog's name is Captain. And when he tears up the garbage, which he has done on multiple occasions, like he does not want to hang out with us. So I actually have to clean it up. I do have to have a conversation with the dog, you know, dog talk, and then we reconcile, and then the dog is good. That same thing happens here. We don't have to stand at a distance and avert our eyes and pretend like God's about to beat us. He beat Jesus for your sin so that you can have this conversation. You have the ability to walk right into his throne room and have this conversation. There's also a tendency in us to think, well, I'm doing better than that guy. I'm doing better than her. Why should I confess and have these hard conversations with dad. I'm doing better than they are. That's a foolish outlook on life. The entire book of James, plus 1 John, Psalm 51, all of scripture points to the fact that I should be most concerned with my own sin. It's not a comparison game. It's a, well, if you want to play the comparison game, it's this. God describes himself as holy, holy, holy. There's your comparison. If it's anything less than holy, 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 you're in the position to have a conversation about your sin. Therefore, all of us always are in a position to have a conversation about our sin. And again, I just wanna say it out loud. This is not a conversation about losing your salvation. It's a conversation about a process of being transformed by Jesus in a secure relationship where you actually grow in your love for him through the path of mourning and weeping. Why? Why does this process cause tears and mourning? A couple thoughts. When we remember how much God loves us, his incredible love for us, seen in Jesus and everything else, to realize that we simply walked away from him should break our hearts a little bit. It is significant to realize that your sin, consciously or subconsciously, unconsciously, we're saying to God, I don't trust you. I don't need you. I love myself more in this moment than I love you. In fact, I'm better off doing things my way without you. Bye, bye. And we just kind of wander on our own. When I realize I'm saying those things, it might cause a tear. Our sin is an adulterous liaison. It's a betrayal. It's a breaking of the heart of God. We should feel that. And when we feel that, sometimes mourning, sometimes tears, 
is super appropriate. It's the right response in the right moment. We must also remember that each sin that's forgiven is forgiven at a cost. Forgiveness is freely given to you, but forgiveness is not free. Hear that again. Forgiveness has been freely given to you, but forgiveness is not free. Every single sin we commit and confess is a sin that landed on the head of Jesus. The wrath we deserve landed on him because of that particular sin. So realizing that my sin and the consequences of my sin landed on the Savior who I love should move me. It should move you. Mourning is incredibly appropriate. When was the last time you were moved, broken over your sin? When's the last time you shed a tear? We should be broken both over the symptoms of our sin and the sickness of our sin. We should be broken over the internal nature of our sin and all the little things that we're doing. Both of those are appropriate conversations to have with our Father. It might sound like this. Father, I'm so sorry for my words my attitudes, my actions, how I treated that person, how I responded in that moment, how I put myself first in that decision-making. I opened the door for me, but I didn't open the door for them. Lord, I recognize that my desire is to put myself first. Lord, would you forgive me and change me? Lord, I've noticed I compare myself to others and when I fall short, I want their things. I want to be more like them. I don't care about being like you. I want to be more like them. Lord, will you forgive me? Lord, will you help me? Lord, my heart longs for things more than it longs for you. Verse 10 talks about humility. It says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The pathway of transformation starts with submitting to God, drawing near to God. It starts with humility. But notice the happy ending. Notice that he says, he will exalt you. So this pathway of getting on our knees, experiencing tears, mourning, pain leads to God exalting us. That doesn't mean God takes us and says, you're right, let's put you in the center of the world. You're king. God is El Elyon. God is the God most high. He is the one who is most exalted. So in my mind, when I read he exalts me or us, it probably looks like this. He grabs me as child and pulls him in close and I'm with the exalted one. When he draws us in close and we're in close relationship with him, it's not that I'm being exalted, but I'm with my God in this incredible relationship and he is the exalted one. So humility is living out everything we've just learned above. Even though there is mourning, there is beauty. Joy turns into mourning, but then mourning turns back into joy. In this process, we have a deeper appreciation of Jesus, the cross, his love, his commitment to us, based upon his faithfulness. He exalts us by drawing us close. A couple of thoughts as we close. James 4 does not point to a moment in time. It points to a lifestyle. Until sin is gone, this process is not gone. I would suggest making confession a part of your everyday prayers in the car, at the side of your bed with others. Confession is just a part of your conversation with God. We confess both the symptoms and the sickness. We confess the outward things and we confess the fact that we're so incredibly sinful and broken on the inside. It's part of our conversation. And if you experience tears, it's totally okay. Maybe today's the day to take a walk, to sit at your desk, to get some time alone, to have these types of conversations with the Lord. 
Repentance and faith takes place in the security of the relationship you have grounded and founded in Jesus himself. It's at the foot of the cross we have these conversations with dad. And these moments are pathways to transformation. They're pathways to increased joy. They're pathways to understanding our love for God and his love for us at a deeper level. This doesn't happen without time in God's presence, without some conviction in our heart and mind. So let's spend some time praying for that. And then in a moment, we're gonna take communion. Those of you at home can join us. And in this moment of communion, we're reminded to remember Jesus and to examine our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Jesus as our savior, the one who puts us in a position to have this conversation. And heavenly father, the one who embraces us and loves us and knows us intimately to the point where you know the conversations we need to have. So give us courage, give us humility to be on this process, this pathway of transformation in you. We thank you for your love and we pray this in your name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media.